today we're continu continuing with our liturgy sermon series. And each week what we're doing in the series is considering why we worship the way we do. We highlight one particular element of our worship. And today we're coming to the Lord's Supper. And historically, different and competing understandings of the Lord's Supper have actually been a source of great division within the church. And within the Reformed tradition that we as a church identify with, the, the Lord's Supper is actually one of the two sacraments that is given and created by Christ for his church. Baptism is the other one. And so today uh, we are looking at the Old Testament book of Exodus. We're looking at Exodus chapter 12, verses, begin, verses 1 through 13, and looking again at 21 through 28. And as we look at this text, you may be thinking, why are we looking at this Old Testament example for the Lord's Supper? And that's a great question because the Lord's Supper is all over the New Testament. We find it in John 6 when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. We see it in other examples in the Gospels where Jesus is truly having the Last Supper with his disciples. And he's instituting it. He's creating it. Or we can look at uh, the book of 1 Corinthians where Paul is giving additional instructions for the Lord's Supper. But the reason, to answer your question, the reason why we're looking at the book of Exodus today we're, is that we're considering the Passover. And that's important because it's important for one of two reasons. The first thing is that within the New Testament, Jesus is called our Passover lamb. You see, Jesus was crucified during Passover. And so Jesus' work on the cross must be understood within the context of the Passover. And the second thing is that is this, is that in many ways, the Lord's Supper is a revised Passover for us. So it's, it's helpful for us to understand what the Passover is, as this, in fact, highlights and informs our regular weekly practice of the Lord's Supper and the role that the Lord's Supper is meant to have in our life. So let's uh, begin by looking at Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, it's on page 53. Here is God's word. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the two and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. You do not eat of it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. It's head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. 
For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt. I execute judgments. I am the Lord. Jumping down to verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans. Kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. And touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep it this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sac sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over to the houses of, of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the pe people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. This is the word of the Lord. What is in a name? What is in a name? Names reveal something. Names reveal the function or a purpose of a thing. Think about an eraser. What does an eraser do? Well, an eraser erases. What do paper clips do? They clip papers together. What do staplers do? They staple. Or a saw. A saw saws a board in two. The light bulb casts light. Names reveal something. They reveal purpose and function. As we look at this text, as we consider the Passover, as we also consider the Lord's Supper, we are learning something about these things just by their names. And if, if we think with the Lord's Supper, for example, the Lord's Supper is known by many names throughout the entire Christian family. You look at uh, the name, the Lord's Supper, it highlights a meal. If you look at another name, the, it goes the, as communion. The, the communion is, is, demonstrates that we have union and communion with God. Another name that the Lord's Supper goes by is the Eucharist, which means a, 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 to give thanks. And so specifically, the Lord's Supper is a meal of thanksgiving. Or um, in the Catholic Church, it's called the Mass, which is from a Latin phrase, which simply means, go, you are sent. And so the Lord's Supper has a missional um, force that is highlighted there by that name. And so as we... we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week, we highlight the fact that the Lord's Supper is a meal. It has bread and it has wine. As we look at the, the Old Testament, here's the Passover. And the Passover it demonstrates something. It's the, pa it's the fact that God is rescuing his people and he passes over his people in judgment. Judgment passes over God's people. And so as we come to this text and, and to consider the Passover, I want to highlight two things about the Passover that really shape us and how these two things make us into a hospitable people of God. And the truth is, uh, there is much we could say on the, on the Lord's Supper. 
where we think about many of the implications of this meal uh, for our lives. And just today, I want us to focus on how this meal makes us into the hospitable people of God. But going back to uh, these threads, these two things I want to highlight from uh, this, this meal, this Passover, the first thing I want to show us, I want us to see, is that this is a meal of rescue. The second thing is that this is a, a meal of reconciliation. It is a meal of rescue, and it is a meal of reconciliation. And as we begin to look at this, I want to point this out, is that this meal, the Passover meal, is the story that shapes Israel's collective memory. It shapes their view of history. It shapes their parenting. It shapes their life together and even how they treated others as well. This story, this meal, this Passover is meant to be known to them in their bones. And the Lord's Supper is, is, is to be that story for us as well. As the Lord's Supper puts Jesus and his work upon the cross, how his blood is shed for us, how his body is broken for us, the cross is meant to shape and fuel and, and empower us. Everything that we think, say, and do is meant to be nourished by Jesus. And so coming into the Passover, it is a meal of reconciliation. It is a meal of rescue and a meal of reconciliation. First, let's think about a meal of rescue. The historical context for the Passover takes place in the book of Exodus. Israel is enslaved by Egypt, which is the house of slavery. And their entire first third of, of Exodus, is, it is a story of how the one true living God is doing battle where he's competing with the Egyptian false gods. There are a series of plagues in Egypt where their false gods are demonstrated to be weak and useless and they are judged. And so our text, as we look at this, it is jarring to our postmodern ears because we're reading a story of how God is sending judgment upon Egypt, how God sends the destroyer to Egypt. And any household that is not covered by the Passover lamb would face judgment. And the divine contest between God and these false gods, it's not vague, it's not abstract, it's actually real. It's lived. And it is, in fact, deadly. And so the Passover meal celebrates the fact that Israel was rescued from judgment, that God passed over Israel in judgment. And so let's think about this further, because judgment should be jarring to us. It should be a warning to us. And perhaps you're even here thinking, hey, I just want a God who loves. I don't want a God of judgment. And th that idea right there would be phrased like this. How could a good God of love be a God of judgment? How could a good God of love be a God of judgment? And if you're thinking that, I want to challenge you with this thought. It's, it's helpful to read outside our, our perspectives. It's helpful to read outside of our own context. And this is an example that's given from a, from a theologian who lived in the time of genocide. This is from Miroslav Volf. He's a Croatian theologian. He's now a scholar at Yale, so he knows our Western world quite well. He, he, he writes this for us, and he suggests to his, his peers, imagine that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The thesis is this. 
We should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon you will discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of this thesis, that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. Wolf's point is this, is that for us to actually say, how could a good God allow judgment? That entire question depends upon privilege. It depends upon the quiet of a suburban life, as he puts it. So you see, to, to him, to, to one who lived and experienced uh, genocide and the horrors of war, he saw firsthand that he is calling out to God to rescue his people, to rescue him amid, amid great evil. And, and that's actually where Israel is as well. God's people are enslaved, they are whipped, they are beaten, and more. And for God's love to be known to his family, there had to be judgment. If there is no judgment, then there's no hope for the slave or the abused, a, a rape victim or those who have been bullied, those who have been slandered or robbed or uh, had their dignity stolen. If nobody is going to, if nobody is called to account before a cosmic judgment seat for violence and oppression, then victims never see justice. We need a God who gets angry. We need a God who will protect his people, who will protect his kids, who once and for all removes the bullies and perpetrators of evil, evil from his world. And thankfully, God does that, but God is also good. He is righteous, and he is perfect, and he is the standard, and we are not. And that's also good news to us. But as we look at this text, the reality is, is that God rescues his people from his judgment. The reality is, is that Jesus rescues us from the penalty of our sin because he died on the cross for you. You are saved because he is the Passover lamb. Because he is the Passover lamb. Because you are covered in his blood, you are rescued. You do not face the judgment of God that you rightfully deserve. You see, God rescues his people through the provision of the Passover lamb. And that right there reconciles us to God. So let's think about the second thing, how this is a meal of reconciliation with God. And as we look at in the Old Testament, as we look at Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, I know, and many of you have told me this, but these are weird books. The Old Testament is strange and foreign to us because it is telling stories of a time of thousands of years ago. And as we look at the, these at this text, this is weird to us because we read it, we read in, in chapter 12 how this meal is supposed to be roasted. It's not meant to be boiled. It's meant to be roasted. And like, so you may be wondering, what is this random detail doing here? Well, if you look in the book of Leviticus, there's another weird thing about another, not weird, it's just confusing. It's where we're just like, why are all these details here? Why are all these laws here? Why are, are all these prescriptions here? If you look at the book of Leviticus, you will quickly read about burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, and guilt offerings, grain offerings, and more. They're all different. And Leviticus is giving instruction 
and after instruction and guidance for each type of offering. But I want to highlight some rules pertaining to these things called peace offerings as they stand out from the list. And the reason why peace offerings are unique is that worshipers may eat of it. They may eat of the offering that's made to God. And the, pr the priest, in other offerings, the priest makes atonement. But that language of the priest making atonement is not used to describe a peace offering. And this is significant. Peace offerings are meals of reconciliation where two estranged parties are now reconciled to one another because of the sacrifice. So in other words, you can actually eat of the meal that you are sacrificing, and that's what the Passover is. God, clearly, this is a meal that is given to God's people to eat, and it is not to be boiled. It's actually meant to be roasted. And in the description, we see that the Passover is a peace offering. The sacrifice that is made enables the worshiper to draw near to God as his sin is dealt with, as her sin is dealt with. And because of that sacrifice, Israelites are able to come to the table and eat the meal with God. That's what a Passover is. The Passover is a type of peace offering. Sa a sacrifice is made and people can eat together with God. And so the Passover in this tell tells us and points us to Jesus. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5 that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. In fact, Jesus, no, not Jesus, John introduces us to Jesus by telling us this is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so if you pull these two threads together, that the Passover is a meal of rescue, that the Passover is a meal of reconciliation, you see how the Passover points to Jesus. Jesus is the one who rescues you. He dies, he saves you from the penalty of sin. And by dying the death that you should have died, Jesus gives you new life and reconciles you to God. Because he is our Passover lamb, you are reconciled to God. We are reconciled to God. In fact, Paul put it this way, that we have been welcomed by Christ. We are a part of God's family. We have been given this amazing grace. And so Jesus did this for you. Jesus died for you and he welcomed you, not because you are perfect, but in fact because you are a sinner. Jesus rescued you because we were lost and we needed a rescuer. We have been welcomed by Christ. This is what Jesus has done for us. And this is what actually what Paul goes on to say in Romans 15, verse 7. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. This is the call for us as Christians. We must be welcoming to others. We must be hospitable. We must be gracious. And it is because we have been reconciled to Christ. It is because we have been welcomed into God's family. So now let, let's think about how this meal calls us to be the new hospitable people of God. And it's all because God is hospitable to us. God nourishes our faith with the Lord's Supper. He empowers, he fuels our obedience with this meal. He empowers and fuels our practice of hospitality. And hospitality is just that. It is a practice. It is intentional. It is tangible. Recently, I listened to a podcast where author and U.S. Senator Ben Sass said that the average American only has 11 hospitality moments within a given year. In other words, Americans are ha only having people over to their homes 11 times a year. 
Hey, you want to come over for game night? That's one. Come over for poker night? That's two. Hey, you want to come over for, for a birthday party or, an aunt or the holidays? Right there is four. Hey, why don't you come over for a movie night? Whatever it may be, Americans only have friends over 11 times a year. Those, it could be friends. It could be family. And this is not surprising to me, but Christians are called to a greater standard. In fact, elders of the church are called to lives of hospitality. That you look in 1 Timothy, elders must be hospitable. We are meant to open up our lives. Hospitality should permeate our lives. And we should see hospitality, not just in the act of opening our homes, but in opening our, our lives. Where we look at one another and we see hands that serve a meal. Where we see uh, people giving hugs and handshakes to one another, where we can actually look at a conversation and it's thoughtful and there are follow-up questions and we can look at one another and we can remember prayer needs, where we can see uh, people praying for one another and lifting one another up. And so the call to, to be hospitable is a call to make room in our lives by opening up our homes, our time, our relationships for one another. And as a church, we seek to do this primarily in our community groups. We also want to do this in our worship gatherings, but we put a major emphasis in our community groups. And we want skeptics and non-Christians to be a regular part of our church life. So we don't use insider Christian language in our worship services. We want to sing songs that are easily known and remember that are accessible to, to you. And we want, we want and we expect questions of skepticism and doubt and hurt within our community life as well. And the reason why is that it is the welcome and the hospi hospitality of God that is informing everything that we think, say, and do. You see, hospitality creates a safe place to live honestly. And honesty with God is the aim of our hospitality. And that's made possible in the most hospitable act that the world has ever known or seen. It's the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. For God at great cost to himself made room for us. And he invited us to his family and invites us to his table. And that is the story that we remember when we come and partake of this bread and wine.